Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, it's nice to be back here. I came here, I think, maybe 10 years ago when uh, Hugh Palmer was uh, the rector. So it's nice to be back in the church once again. And thank you very much for submitting yourself to some Wenglish, which is Welsh-English speech. When my wife lived in Paris many years ago, I remember speaking at an evangelistic meeting, and uh, an American lady came up to me afterwards and said, I love your voice. Please give me your itinerary. I'd like to follow you around the world. And as my, as my head began to swell, I said, why would you like to follow me around the world? She said, well, before I came here tonight, I hadn't slept for five weeks. But uh, five minutes after you got up to speak, I was gone. The reason I want to follow you is you're the answer to my insomnia. And uh, if it only happens once, it's not so bad. But uh, last time I was in Edinburgh, I was uh, speaking at another meeting, and a friend of mine who's Egyptian, who's there doing his doctorate, was there with his two boys. They were very young, and they obviously fell asleep. Then he went back to uh, Cairo, where he's president of a seminary now, and he wrote to me the other day, and he said, Lindsay, it's so hot in Cairo, so much hotter than Edinburgh. He said, it's difficult for the boys to get to sleep at night, so I wonder if you could do me a favor. Could you send me some tapes of your talks so I can play them to them? Well, apparently these talks are taped, so you can listen to these if you have difficulty in sleep at night. Now then, I'd like to draw your attention to this passage in 2 Timothy, uh, if I may. It's a very interesting passage. Uh, Let me explain why, given the context. Many people assume, looking at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, that uh, he was just one great success story after another, and that he planted a string of churches which flourished. However, there were occasions where, from a human perspective, at least superficially, Paul's ministry appeared to be an abject failure. And his ministry in the province of Asia, which was a province in what is current modern-day Turkey, was one of those apparent failures. We know that because in the first chapter of this second letter, Paul explains to Timothy why he's writing to him. He says in verse 15 of uh, this first chapter, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including these two gentlemen, Phygelus and Hermogenes. In other words, Paul has reached the end of his life. He's probably in prison, never to be released again. And he can't do anything other than pray for what's left behind there and uh, seek to find a successor. So he's writing to Timothy, who is a relatively young guy, probably mid-30s, to ask him if he would go and rescue the situation where the church effectively has disintegrated. Uh, Imagine if I came here this morning from Wales and said, everybody in the church in Wales has deserted the gospel. Can you please send someone back to help resurrect the church? I wonder what kind of person you'd send. Probably someone who is very experienced and so on. Well, we know a few things about, uh, about Timothy from Paul's two letters to him. We know he was young because in this second chapter we've just read, later on, Paul says to him, shun youthful passions. He's already told him in the first letter to him uh, that no one should despise his youthfulness. Secondly, we uh, know that he was timid by temperament, which is sometimes that characterizes something that characterizes people often who have lost a parent when they are young. 
and uh, Timothy was raised by his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. Eunice. His father, a Greek, had died when Timothy was young, clearly, so he lacked a bit of confidence, and that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says to him, God's not given us a spirit of timidity, so he was probably somewhat an introvert by temperament, and thirdly, he was frequently ill. Because Paul says to him again in 1 Timothy, take some wine for your frequent illnesses. In other words, he was young, he was timid, he was often ill. Not the kind of profile that you normally look for, for someone you're being asked to send to resurrect a church that has crumbled. Well, uh, nevertheless, that's the person that Paul wrote to, to ask, take take on this responsibility. And what that shows us is that God can use all types to carry on his work. Introvert, extrovert, young, as well as older, people who are ill, those who are not the bearers of great sickness as well. But in this case, that's what we see uh, about Timothy. Now, Paul can't do much other than write to him. So what he does here in the second chapter we had read to us is give him five life principles that will help him in his ministry. And these are five life principles which are wonderful exhortations for anybody who is thinking that God may be calling them to serve overseas, but also they're life principles for all of us, even if we never leave the shores of Britain or never leave the city of Sheffield. So if you want to live a fruitful life, it would be good to absorb and engage with these five principles. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in one of these last letters he ever writes to give him these exhortations to stand firm and press on. The first is, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the grace of God is is something which is, uh, the word grace is like an invention of the New Testament. It's not found in any other religious literature. You won't find it in the Quran, for example. Muslims have 99 names for God, but four things they never say about God that are in the Bible are that God is personal, God is loving, God is a father, and God is a God of all grace. That word grace means God's sheer unmerited favor, and it is exhibited in two senses. It's really important to understand this because understanding and imbibing and receiving the grace of God is the fountain from which all Christian service and joy flows. Virtually every missionary I've asked who is in their 70s and 80s and to whom I put the question, what has kept you going for 40, 50, 60 years in the Christian life? Invariably, they'll say one of the keys was understanding the depth and the profundity of God's grace and drawing on it in two ways. First of all, it's by the grace of God that we are delivered from death to life, that we become Christians, that we enter into the kingdom of God, that we become Uh, his children. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the means by which he takes our sin, pins it in Christ on the cross, and sets us free. I remember once speaking in a conference in South America, in Argentina, about the depth of God's grace, his sheer mercy towards us. And afterwards, it was a beautiful anticyclonic night with stars in the sky, This gentleman followed me out and tapped me on the shoulder. He was a Dutch missionary in his late 70s. And he said, thank you very much for speaking about God's grace. Of course, I've spoken about it many times myself. But he said, whenever I hear someone else speak about God's grace, I'm deeply moved. I said, oh, why is that? 
He said, well, during the Second World War, I was a member of the Hitler Youth. He said, I saw terrible things. I did terrible things. Soon after the war, I met Christ. I was touched by his sheer mercy, by his grace towards me, by which he forgave me uh, of my sins. And then he said, so great was God's grace. Not only did he save me by his grace, but he gave me the opportunity to serve him cross-culturally in a pioneer situation. And my wife and I went to Irian Jaya in the South Pacific. We were the first missionaries there. We were winched down from a Dutch helicopter because we were working amongst headhunters and the Dutch Air Force was afraid of these headhunters. So my wife and I were winched down. We worked with these people for over 30 years. And he said, revival broke out amongst them. And on one Sunday, he said, I baptized 4,000 people. So he said, you see why I think the grace of God is so wonderful? Because by it, not only did he save me, he chose to use me also in his service and use me in the midst of revival. So great is God's grace. There another occasion I was speaking in a Bible study in Paris about a Bible verse which is reiterated three times actually in the Old Testament. It's exactly the same phrase where God says, I will remember your sins no more. I happen to mention this is the doctrine of the forgetfulness of God, the grace of God whereby he not only forgives us, but as it were, willfully, volitionally chooses to remember our sins no more because they are dealt with in Christ. I happened to mention this, and a girl in the Bible study shouted out, Hallelujah. I was surprised because she was an introvert, and in those days, most Anglicans didn't shout out, Hallelujah. So I was a little bit surprised. I didn't put her on the spot, though I didn't want to embarrass her. But three weeks later, she came to see me privately, and she said, You know, you mentioned that verse where God says, I will remember your sins no more. Does it apply to everything? I said, Sure. What's the problem? She said, Well, six years ago, came from a middle class family, I became pregnant. She said, I had an abortion. I was pressurized by my family. I can't forgive myself. Do you think God can use me? I said, read the verse again. Does it say, I will remember your sins no more in brackets, except for abortion? Close brackets. No, it says, I'll remember your sins no more, full stop. Or as the French say, point. No exceptions. Go and don't repeat it. You can't bring the child back. But in objective, eternal terms, your sins are remembered no more. That is the depth and the profundity of God's grace. And one of the reasons many Christians do not share their faith is because they believe they can't believe God can possibly use them, given some of the things they've done in secret, even that their families don't know about. But the grace of God teaches us that there is nothing which can be outside of His grace which he cannot forgive us for. He's willing to use any one of us, even those who think they're the weakest saints in the history of the church. Some people know about the grace of God technically. They can explain the doctrine of justification by grace. But in terms of touching the senses as well as the brain, it's never happened. It's far off. And you can almost spot it within five minutes because people who have tasted absorbed, living in the light of the grace of God, they are joyful Christians, which is one of the chief characteristics of the followers and servants of Christ. If you want joy in all its fullness, plumb the depths of the grace of God. But the other dimension is that the grace of God is the means by which He keeps us and sustains us day by day. There are many Christians, including the church I grew up with, they have kind of staccato experiences 
They're asking, they're going out in meetings, recommitting themselves all the time, rather than drawing on God's grace every day. And uh, God's grace is available to help us in the midst of adversity and the challenges and the vicissitudes of life. Let me illustrate. Some years ago, I was speaking in Word Alive, the conference UCCF organizes, and it was the last occasion where Professor Sir Norman Anderson spoke in public. He was a brilliant lawyer. He wrote a great book called Evidence for the Resurrection and many other books. I saw him in debate, and he was like this, very cold. He could dismantle another argument without any notes. Very cool and cerebral in the law court. Professor of law in Cambridge, London, and in Alexandria and Egypt. He spoke Arabic. He was a brilliant man, one of the most brilliant I've ever met. But he had a tragic personal life. He had three children who all predeceased him in their 20s and early 30s. Sadly, one even committed suicide. At this time, he was 85 years of age. His wife had senile dementia. Then he was interviewed before I spoke. It was one of those interviews you never forget. And the young curate, they must have agreed the questions beforehand, because I thought he went too far. He said, Professor Anderson, you're now 85. You've served Christ for 70 years. You've lost all your children. Your wife can no longer recognize you. Do you ever ask the question, why me? I'll never forget his answer. Straight back, he said, I never asked the question, why me? But I do ask the question, why not me? Because I'm not promised in a fallen world that I will not experience these things. When a plane goes down, it's likely that there will be, be believers in it as unbelievers. Some believers lose children. I did. My wife and I lost our only daughter 25 years ago last month. These things happen in a fallen world. But he said, the difference between me and the unbeliever is I have the grace of God, which is given to me in three ways through the promises of Scripture, which give us the hope of eternal life. My children were believers, as is my wife. Secondly, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the company of God's people, who are at their best in the church, available to help and support and sustain cast-down and troubled Christians. These three evidences of the grace of God, he said, I draw on. It doesn't eradicate my pain, but it tempers it. It was a beautiful answer the best I've ever heard on that subject. But what was he talking about there? The grace of God which is available to us in all circumstances. Now my question therefore to you is, are you drawing on God's grace? Because it would be a very unusual congregation if some of us aren't going through the depths of despond or struggling with trauma or difficulties or loss uh, or problems in life. And the problem often, even for mature Christians, is we struggle on in our own strength instead of drawing on God's grace through these three means. Promises of Scripture, company of God's people, help of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, I remember uh, the story of Wang Mindao, a great evangelist, Chinese, in the early 50s. Uh, at 55 years of age, he was imprisoned by the communists for 30 years, eight in solitary confinement. An Irish friend of mine interviewed him just when he was released, and I'll never forget the interview. I have a copy of it at home on tape. He said to him, you've been in prison for 30 years, eight in solitary confinement. Do you feel any bitterness towards God? Because at 55, you were at your peak when you were taken away. By this time, when he was released from prison, he was blind, could hardly speak. And straight away, he said, no, I don't feel any bitterness towards God. My time in prison, even in solitary confinement, was, quote, 
a honeymoon with Jesus. Now, why did he say that? It's because he tasted the grace of God, drew on the grace of God, and was encouraged by the presence of the Holy Spirit and was remembering Bible verses, God's promises, which he'd given to him and had the hope of heaven. So are you drawing on God's grace? First of all, for salvation, then for strengthening day by day. Most miserable professing Christians have not drawn on or tasted the grace of God. You can pretty well tell it pretty quickly. And my, the best thing I can say this morning is plumb the depths of the grace of God and draw in on each day, and it makes joyful, trusting Christians who are dependent upon the God of the Bible and who are energized for Christian service. That is why Paul started with this. But then he moves on and says more briefly in verse 2, he says, pass on what you've learned. And here he talks about the things you've heard from me, say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. That doesn't mean that women don't have a role, because elsewhere there were women involved, both with their husbands and on their own. So all believers had to have this role of mentoring or equipping or influencing or shaping the next generation. This is really important because God wants us to engage in this even until our death. There's no such thing in God's economy of pensioning people off and saying, there's no room for you now to serve in terms of equipping and energizing others. I did an interview with the BBC the other day, and they asked, said to me, you've worked with many great Christian leaders over the last 35 years. Billy Graham, John Stott, Francis Schaeffer, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Which was the one who influenced you most of all? I said, none of them. The person who influenced me most of all was my grandmother, who left school at 12, who could barely read, but with whom I lived on my own for 12 years from the age of 7 to 19. She loved me unconditionally. She cared for me. She sent me to a Sunday school where I became a Christian. I am deeply indebted to her, and I can't think of anything negative to say about her other than that she loved to drink 20 cups of tea a day on average. She was a remarkable woman. Those of you who are grandparents, for example, you have a really important role. You may not see all the fruit of it, but under God and by His grace, all that I am today is the fruit of the input of that one wonderful Welsh grandmother who gave me so much. She loved me unconditionally, and she cared for me and taught me, sent me to a Sunday school, even before she'd become a Christian. She became a Christian two or three years after me as I read the Bible to her. I am so indebted to her. Think back over your life and ask, who invested in me? And thank God for them. Then ask a subsidiary question, supplementary question, in whom am I investing? So many Christians are just like sponges. They listen to a lot of good Bible teaching, and they say that was a good word, and they do nothing about it. But the mark of the mature Christian is that they are committed to loving and serving others. And I tell you, when we do that, we get our own troubles in perspective. I remember when my mother died, on the day of her funeral, my mother had a temperament like that, very even-tempered. But my father, a good day, was if he was only depressed twice a day. He was a classic up-and-downer. And my brother and I were worried about him. What's going to happen with the stable one in the family gone? I thought he might even commit suicide. And then on the day of the funeral, my father said to me, 
I'm going to live now as if your mother was here. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, if she was here, she would tell me, Joe, serve other people. He said, that's what I'm going to do. So he started taking minibus trips of widows and widowers all over Wales for day trips. And in his 80s, he used to phone me up and say, what are you doing tomorrow, boy? Can you come here at 7 o'clock? Take us on a 15-hour bus trip to North Wales and back. There were only 17 of us. But he served others, and as a result, he, he only had three Sunday lunches on his own in 20 years because people responded to him serving. Paradoxically, when we serve and when we invest in others, so they respond. Don't turn into your shell and hide a word away from the world if you're trying to deal with loss, for example, in your life. What Paul is talking about here is, is he's pa- talking about passing on the deposit of truth. But elsewhere, he said to Timothy, I gave you of myself. So he gave Timothy two things, the deposit of truth and himself. Let me tell you the two classic mistakes many Christians make. Some who are very word-oriented, they dump the truth on people as if it's a nuclear uh, bomb. Here it is, I've given you the package, one, and then they're gone. So no personal engagement. Others who are very concerned for pastoral counseling will listen and be drained by listening to others, maybe stay up late into the night, but they haven't deposited the gospel of truth. Often they give of themselves, but not the deposit of truth. What Paul demonstrates in his writing to Timothy is is that we are to give of ourselves, but as we do so, to pass on the deposit of truth. Second question, with whom are you doing that? Are you passing on the deposit of truth to anyone? It would revolutionize the, the life of every church if the vast majority of members engage in investing in at least one other person. And often the problem is that too few people do that. We absorb, we receive, but we're often so caught up in ourselves, we're not passing on the most wonderful of wonders, the deposit of truth. Thirdly, Paul goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, to be prepared to endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one is serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. It is impossible to live the Christian life without sacrifice. German theologians don't often say very much that's helpful, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer did say, sacrifice is the badge of discipleship. It's hard to get away from it. And one Romanian pastor, Paul Negrut, said, Christian life is not a game, but a battle, and there's no blessing without sacrifice. Certainly for cross-cultural workers, it may involve giving up status, leaving family behind, health, security. But even if we stay within our own culture, there are bound to be sacrifices if we're going to be engaged in the propagation of the gospel of Christ. Let me just say two riders here, though. Notice the order in which Paul speaks. He first of all speaks of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, then the call to sacrifice. I've heard so many preachers in young people's um, uh, gatherings especially call young people to a life of sacrifice without reminding them why. The reason we sacrifice is because we've tasted God's grace. When we understand the profundity and the wonder of God's grace, we don't ask, what must I give up? We ask, what can I give up? Because this is the greatest message in the history of the world. Therefore, I'll do anything to get it out there, and I can't think of anything better in life to do than to propagate this message. 
So grace must always come, for, come before the call to sacrifice. If not, and if we call people to sacrifice, to endure hardness for the gospel, without reminding them of God's grace, even if they have a stiff upper lip, they last for three to five years, the best of them, because they don't do it with joy. They don't continue. The other thing is, elsewhere in his writings, Timothy and also James speak about God as being the giver of every good and perfect gift. It's a wonderful verse I've never heard in the book of James, preached on, where James says, God is the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, the giver of every good and perfect gift, richly and freely to be enjoyed. So in the New Testament, you have this creative tension. It's a very interesting one. On the one hand, a regular calling to endure hardship and prepared for sacrifice in Christian service. On the other, an affirmation that all that is good in this life and this world is a gift of God, richly and freely to be enjoyed. Elsewhere, Paul says to Timothy, some people in the last days are going to say, don't get married, don't eat certain meats. But Paul said these are gifts of God to be enjoyed. So what are the gifts in our culture? Maybe Sheffield United or Sheffield Wednesday football team? Perhaps not. Uh, the gifts of food, the gifts of family, the gifts of beautiful music, so many other rich gifts to be enjoyed in life. They are given to us by God richly and freely to be enjoyed. And when Christians have an interest in them and enjoy them, we are much more interesting people before the wider world. We should be interested in all of God's world. And so our conversation can range over many things because we see these are good gifts of God. But how do you hold the appreciation of all these good gifts in creative tension with the call to sacrifice? The best answer I ever heard was from Amy Carmichael, the English missionary in India. She said this, I thank God for all his good gifts, my family, my culture, my home church, and so much else. But she said, I hold them in the palm of an open hand. So if God asks me to give some of them up for the greater cause of the advance of the gospel, including in my coming to India, they do not have to be prized out of my hand. I think that's the biblical tension. We enjoy the panoply of all God's gifts, but we are prepared, if necessary, to give some up for the advance of the gospel. But sacrifice is inevitable for the cause of the gospel if it's to advance. The fourth thing that Paul says is to be like an athlete, single-minded. In verse 5, he talks about the athlete keeping the rules, but a secondary application is an athlete seeking to win the race. You watch in the Olympics later this year, if you watch any uh, British Olympians who win silver medals. I remember in the last Olympics, there was a group of four female rowers, and they got a silver medal, and the interviewer said to them, you must be so pleased you've got a silver medal in the Olympics. And they all started to howl. And when one of them finally composed herself, she said, actually, we're really disappointed. We trained for the gold. And it's similar here. Paul is exhorting believers to be single-minded. It's like Jesus said, you can't serve God and materialism. Mammon, be single-minded in your devotion. The question is, are we? We're so much pressurized by materialism, the influence of secularism, and other good things, but which are secondary to honoring the name of Christ. I always remember the great story of Henry Martin, the Cambridge mathematician who went out to Iran a couple of hundred years ago, 
who's a brilliant linguist, translated the New Testament into about four languages before he died at 31 years of age. He never married. Uh, he had a fiance back home to whom he wrote, and um, he wrote in one of his letters, my love must wait to be consummated while I'm doing this translation. And uh, David Bentley Taylor wrote a biography of him called that, My Love Must Wait. They never married because he died at 31. On another occasion, he wrote back to his fiancée. At that time, Iran and Russia were at war together, and many, the Russians were viewed as Christians, the Iranians as Muslims. Many Russian soldiers were killed. And he wrote to his fiancée, Yesterday I met with an Islamic mullah, and he said to me, I had a dream last night, and in my dream, your Jesus fell at the feet of my Muhammad and pleaded with him for mercy for the lives of the Christian soldiers. Henry Martin wrote this. I was cut to the soul by this blasphemy. I could not endure existence if Christ was not glorified. It would be hell for me if he was thus dishonored. For when Christ is insulted, I am wounded. Is that how you feel about the person of Christ? If not, it may be that today we have to go to him and say, Lord, forgive me that my heart's grown cold. Recalibrate my heart and my mind so I'm focused single-mindedly on living and speaking for you. That's the fourth characteristic. So Paul has already told Timothy, depend on God's grace, pass on the deposit of truth, be prepared to endure hardness, be single-minded like an athlete, and then lastly, he says, be like a farmer in verse 6. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, I don't know if you have any farmers in your family. My wife comes from a farming background in Pembrokeshire. The distinctive feature of Pembrokeshire farmers in West Wales is none of them are fast-moving. They're really slow. There might be some people in England who have mega farms who are fast-moving and highly mechanized, but in West Wales, everything moves slowly. And I think it did in the New Testament era also. What Paul is saying here effectively is, don't be governed by a desire to get things quick. Speed, Samuel Escobar said, is the only thing which 20th century man has discovered. Instant coffee, instant pleasure, instant sex, instant celebrity status, instant everything. We want everything and we want it quick. It's the antithesis of the Christian lifestyle. The advantage, I told the students in Oxford this last week, of being in your late 50s as I am, is you can see how God has worked over 35, 40 years. That's one of the few pluses of getting older. You can look back and see God's work, even albeit sometimes slowly over a period of time, and see Him bring about His purposes. The dominant emphasis of our own culture is getting everything quickly but Paul's calling here is to persevere like a farmer. Let me give you two illustrations of that before I close. One is from the world of government and business. Jerry Garner is a great Christian leader in the government in um, Nigeria. He's served five presidents. He's a Christian for those presidents who are Muslims, but he's got a reputation of being free of corruption. I visited him in his offices a couple of years ago, and I said, Jerry, what's your vision? Um, how have you managed to remain free of corruption from 35 years in politics in Nigeria. He said three things. First, when I was a student, I was taught to abide in Christ, keep short accounts, walk with him day by day. He said, you don't hear that much, much these days. Secondly, uh, he said, 
I choose who I work with very carefully. Because he said, even sometimes Christians come up with some strange ideas. So I'm very slow to commit myself to partnership till I know all the ins and outs. Then he said, thirdly, I realize the importance of legacy. He said, I want to see the political culture changed in my country. I want to see more Christian influence here. So what I've been doing over the last 30 years is gathering younger guys around and trying to equip them to help them to develop a Christian mind in relation to government and governance. He said, I'm praying God will give me another 30 years to equip the next generation. And I'm praying that God will use that generation to equip the next so that over the next 60 years, we see a change and a reduction of the corruption in our culture. Now, that's a long-term vision. Do you ever think like that when it comes to your family or to your workplace, leaving a legacy of influence behind? Most people just think of surviving. But actually, our calling is to leave a legacy and pass on and influence and shape the next generation and to persevere. Last illustration is from the field of mission. Adoniram Judson, uh, it was the 200th anniversary of his sailing from Boston to India and then Burma or Myanmar just uh, two weeks ago. And he is regarded by, as the father of missions in North America. He and his wife Anne left in 1812 for India. They couldn't get in, so they went to, to Myanmar or Burma next door. His wife died after a few years, and he remarried. But he didn't just say, oh, I'll marry the widow of another missionary who's died. He went to the grave of his wife every day for a year, and he wept over the grave and said, Lord, how can I continue when my best co-worker and my soulmate is gone? He was deeply grieved, but he stayed there for 38 years till 1850. During those 38 years, he saw about 15 to 20 people come to faith. That's all. No church started, no small group. He was imprisoned. He was hung upside down. He was beaten. When he died, he was on a boat offshore, and they just dropped his body over the side. They didn't even put him in a grave. He was forgotten. But just before he died, he had finished the translation of the, the Bible into the Burmese language in 1850. 150 years later, a friend of mine went to speak at the anniversary, 150th anniversary of the translation by Judson of the Bible into the Burmese language. And he got up to speak before a crowd of people. And as you do in other countries, you look at the beginning of the Bible to see if you can see any words you understand. And the only ones he could read in small type were translated by Rev. A. Judson. That's all, in small print. So he turned to his translator, Matthew, and said, Matthew, do you know anything about this man? His translator started to weep. He said, oh, yes, I know him. And I know about his wife, Anne. I know how he lost his first wife, and listen to this, he lost seven children, and he stayed. We know how he loved Christ. We know how he loved the Burmese people. We know how he suffered for the gospel. He said, when he died, there were 15 of us. Today, there are 600,000. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Judson. And he never saw it. And most of you will never see it either. Whether it's investing in your families or people in your neighborhood or in some cases investing by serving overseas. But the calling of Christians is to persevere like a farmer knowing that if we sow the seed, if we scatter it, if we plant it, God will bring forth the fruit in his own time and we can trust him to do that 
and not give in to despair. That's Paul's fifth and last exhortation. So depend on God's grace. Pass on the deposit of truth. Be prepared to endure hardness. It'll come. Don't look for it, but it'll come. Be single-minded and persevere. And he closes with those three magical words that we had read to us in the next verse and last verse. If you feel like giving up, remember Jesus Christ who didn't. If you feel like you can't persevere, remember Jesus Christ who set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. If you feel the sacrifice is too great, remember Jesus Christ. If you feel you can't do it on your own, remember the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If you feel you can't be single-minded, remember Jesus Christ who was single-minded to the end. That's our calling as believers. Notice how all these exhortations are sandwiched between these two great truths. Depend on God's grace, which is in Christ Jesus, and remember the example and the ministry and the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an exhortation that Paul offers to this young man setting out on years of sacrificial ministry. And in the goodness of God across the pages of time and history, those exhortations have come down to us. And our calling today is to embrace them and live in the light of them. I guarantee if we do so, God will give us joy unspeakable and fruitful lives. So let's go to it. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Scriptures which are given for our nourishment, our correction, our encouragement. Thank you that these personal letters written by Paul to this young leader, emerging leader, Timothy, have been passed down through the agency of your Holy Spirit and your people so that we can read and be encouraged and exhorted by them today. Help us, O living God of heaven, each one of us, to draw fresh on your grace in Christ Jesus, to plumb the depths of your grace, to pass on what we have learned, not just keep it to ourselves, not to look for suffering, but to be prepared for hostility and opposition and hardness because we are serving Christ, to be single-minded like athletes and to persevere like the farmer, remembering Jesus Christ. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen.